Welcome back to the Maritime History Podcast, everyone. You're listening to episode 11, Harappa and the Erythrean Sea. And today's episode is brought to you thanks to the kind donation of listener Rick Conley. I just wanted to say a personal thank you to Rick. Uh, your donation allowed me to become a member of the Society for Nautical Research, which publishes a lot of academic research about maritime history and nautical history in their uh, quarterly journal. So being a member of this society gives me access to a lot more research material that will hopefully help improve the quality of the show and the depth of our discussion as we continue growing. So thank you again, Rick, for helping me gain access to that material. I really appreciate it. And to all the other listeners of the show, Rick is a photographer whose main subject is horses, as they appear at uh, horse contests and other types of events in his local area. So if you're curious to see his work, you can check it out on his website at www.drafthorsephoto.com. Thanks again, Rick. One more quick thank you for the most recent iTunes reviews from listener Billy Bob O'Bray. Although I'm not 100% sure where the emphasis goes in your username, thanks for the rating and review nonetheless. Thank you as well to Nerd Bickerington, a great username, and to CraigBuddy123, captain of the History of Pirates podcast. To Mr. Bickerington, or Bickerington, not sure which one there either, thanks for the kind review, and please feel free to correct me on the details if I mess something up, as I'm sure to do at some point, and as I may already have done in pronouncing your username. Thanks also to Craig Buddy, and keep up the good work on the history of pirates. I certainly look forward to each and every episode, and have enjoyed them all so far. Alright, let's dive right into the material for today, but if you want to stick around at the end of the episode, I'll have an announcement about an upcoming special episode I'm working on that I'm sure you'll want to hear more about. Today we leave ancient Egypt behind, roll back the clock, and shift our geographic focus about 4,000 kilometers to the east. That's 4,000 kilometers by air, though. If we were traveling by sea from an Egyptian port somewhere on the Red Sea coast, east over to Mumbai, India, we'd have to tack on at least another 1,000 kilometers, giving us a sea voyage of 2,750 nautical miles at least. Anyway, our next port of focus is India, or the Indian subcontinent to be technical. This region, and the Indus River Valley specifically, is the third point in the triangle of civilizations that we've seen up to this point. The Mesopotamian cultures at the north end of the Persian Gulf, the Egyptian Red Sea ports strewn along the Red Sea's western coastline, and now the Indus peoples, far to the east on the other side of what the ancients called the Erythrean Sea. Today we refer to the sea as the Arabian Sea. It's the body of water that's bordered by the Horn of Africa, the Arabian Peninsula, and the western coasts of the Indian subcontinent. The word Erythra in Greek means red, so the Greeks and Romans called the Arabian Sea the Red Sea not to be confused with the separate body of water that we now call the same name. A Greek writer commented on the origin of the name by saying, 
They say that the sea called Erythra, or red, is of a deep blue color, but that it was so named, as I said before, from a king Erythros, who gave his own name to the sea in question. Despite this ancient claim, it's more plausible that the sea, like today's Red Sea, gained its name because of the annual blooms of the red-colored Trichodesmium erythraeum near the water's surface. These are organisms, and they're also known as sea sawdust. They're some type of bacteria that I really didn't spend much time looking into, so I can't explain them to you properly beyond the fact that some of them appear as a reddish hue in the color, and that's where the red in the Red Sea, or the word erythra, comes from. On a broad level, I think it will be helpful for us to understand the cultures of the Indian subcontinent as part of a maritime system, because much of what we know about the ancient peoples of the region, and their maritime exploits in particular, comes by way of their connection with Egypt or with Mesopotamia. The early cultures of the Indian subcontinent didn't leave us much in the way of a written record, and for the earliest of civilizations there, we haven't even deciphered their pseudo-writing system yet, but more on that in a minute. Before we home in on the oldest known civilization of the region, let's get a broad view of the role that monsoons play in connecting the three regions that I just listed. Our best source of information about the region from a maritime perspective comes from an anonymous work written by a Greek-Egyptian sometime in the first century BCE. It's called the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea, and although it comes from a much later period, it's a good jumping-off point for our purposes today. The work is a 68-chapter description of the coastlines around the Indian Ocean, with descriptions of the major port cities, the goods that could be had at each port, and much more beyond that. The most interesting descriptions, in my opinion at least, involved the sailors' navigation tips about how best to reach these locations, and the dangers for which to keep a lookout. In several places throughout the Periplus, the writer mentions a month of the year during which he suggests you should begin your journey to or back from India, as the seasonal monsoon winds make the journey much quicker when they're at your back. I tried to summarize how the monsoon winds work myself, but I think it'll be much more helpful to just pull a paragraph from Brian Fagan's book, Beyond the Blue Horizon, to help describe the importance of these winds to the region and to the region's history. He writes, The secrets of the monsoon were common knowledge around the northern Indian Ocean, sometimes called the Arabian Sea, long before recorded civilization. In these usually benign waters, the monsoon winds blow from the northeast from November to March, and somewhat less predictably from the southwest between May and September. Summer heat warms the continental landmasses north of the ocean. The hot air rises and creates a low pressure zone at the Earth's surface, causing moisture-laden air from the sea to move into the low pressure area. As this air climbs on rising air currents, rain-bearing clouds bring monsoon rains. In winter, the pattern reverses, because the ocean cools more slowly than the land. The winds now blow toward the ocean, 
The northeast monsoon wind is the major player, a lovely breeze that blows virtually continually, never at gale force, almost never dropping to a flat calm, never changing direction dramatically. This is a sailor's delight. Indeed it was, and continues to be, the sailor's delight. The sailor who wrote the Periplus was intimately acquainted with the monsoon winds, telling his readers that most sailors left Africa in July and route east to the Indus River Valley, so as to take advantage of the winds. He says that it is more dangerous then, but through these winds the voyage is more direct and sooner completed. Of the Indus River Valley, the Periplus says that from it flows the river Synthus, or the Indus River, the greatest of all the rivers that flow into the Erythrean Sea, bringing down an enormous volume of water, so that a long way out at sea, before reaching this country, the water of the ocean is fresh from it. Now, as a sign of approach to this country, to those coming from the sea, there are serpents coming forth from the depths to meet you. And a sign of the places just mentioned, and in Persia, are those called Grea. This river has seven mouths, very shallow and marshy, so that they are not navigable except the one in the middle, at which by the shore is the market town Barbaricum. Now, I can't personally vouch for the validity of the sea serpents that supposedly met arriving sailors, and the Greek word used here, barbaricum, refers to the port city of Karachi, Pakistan, but more generally it was used to describe regions that they felt were outside of the bounds of civilization. The author of the Periplus had a negative opinion of the Arabian Sea as a whole, saying that navigation is dangerous along the whole coast of Arabia, which is without harbors, with bad anchorages, foul, inaccessible because of breakers and rocks, and terrible in every way. His description of the Indian coastline also paints a pretty bleak picture. Even after taking advantage of the monsoon winds to speed up the eastward journey, a choice that carried some risk with it apparently, Arrival in the Indus Valley region carried different risks altogether. Once you got past the sea serpent greeting party, you had to deal with treacherous coastlines and deceptive inlets. The Gulf of Iranon and the Gulf of Baraka, the modern-day Gulf of Kutch, was especially dangerous being described like this. The water is shallow, with shifting sandbanks occurring continually, and a great way from shore, so that very often, when the shore is not even in sight, ships run aground, and if they attempt to hold their course, they are wrecked. A promontory stands out from this gulf, curving around from Iranon towards the east, then south, then west, and enclosing the gulf called Baraka, which contains seven islands. Those who come to the entrance of this bay escape it by putting about a little and standing further out to sea, but those who are drawn inside into the Gulf of Baraka are lost, for the waves are high and very violent, and the sea is tumultuous and foul, and has eddies and rushing whirlpools. The bottom is in some places abrupt, and in others rocky and sharp, so that the anchors lying there are parted, some being quickly cut off, and others chafing on the bottom. 
As a sign of these places to those approaching from the sea, there are serpents, very large and black, for at the other places on this coast and around Beregaza, they are smaller and in color bright green, running into gold. More serpents here, which were black apparently, but at least in other locales in the region, there were serpents of other colors to keep things interesting. All of this looking at the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea is to say basically this. The monsoon winds in the Arabian Sea played a huge role in connecting the Indian subcontinent with Egypt and Mesopotamia. A little side note here before we move on to look at the people who populated the region. I was caught in two minds about whether to record the Periplus as a supplemental episode like I did with the tale of the shipwrecked sailor. The positives are that it's packed full of fascinating info about the writer's perception of the people and cities around the Arabian Sea in the first century BCE. The negative is that the Periplus is rather lengthy, and many of the city names aren't readily recognizable without some translation into their modern names or locations. If you like, pop onto the forum or to the Facebook page and let me know if you're interested in a supplementary episode of the Periplus. If there's enough demand, I'm more than willing, but I'll have to figure out a way to include some of the explanatory extras to make it useful for our modern ears and minds. By the way, it's likely that we'll revisit this work when we cover Roman-era trade, as that's the period when it was actually written. So maybe I'll record it for its benefit in several different discussions in the future. I look forward to your thoughts either way, though. Thanks in advance. Now on to the details we do know about the oldest civilization from the region, the Harappan Civilization, also known as the Indus Valley Civilization. As you may have deduced from the name, this civilization was centered on the valley that tracks the Indus River. The river and many of the large Harappan cities were located in modern-day Pakistan. The Harappans also spread east and into modern-day India, especially along the Gujarat coastline, where one location we'll talk about later today is located, the ancient city of Lothal. So we know the location of the Harappan civilization for a start. That's the good news. The bad news is that there is still so much we don't know about these ancient people. Sites that are today identified as Harappan were first described in an archaeological sense only in the mid-19th century, but it wasn't until 1922 that enough had been unearthed about this civilization for scholars to connect the dots that the sites they've been looking at were the remnants of a distinct an entire civilization to itself. Subsequent research has landed on the region of 3000 BCE for the earliest signs of the Harappans coalescing into a veritable civilization, with the mature Harappan period beginning around 2600 BCE. It was by this mature Harappan period that the settlement sites of the culture had grown into urban centers that we would now call cities. For being a fairly large and early civilization, the Harappan people left a faint mark on the pages of history. Part of this is due to the fact that these people were on the borderline of being a literate culture. They left plenty of seals, tablets, and pots with their markings, but the language, 
if we can ever legitimately call it such, has yet to be deciphered. Regardless, almost every instance of these markings is only made up of a few symbols at most, so even if we do decipher their writing system someday in the future, there's little chance that there will be any substantial literature that comes from the Harappan culture. Most of what we know about these people, then, comes to us from the traces that were left lying around in other civilizations. For instance, we know that the Harappan people must have had a vast trade network, because pottery, beads, and seals with Harappan writing have been found at numerous locations, including locations in Mesopotamia, Egypt, and places on the Arabian Peninsula. Other goods and items that are strewn across ancient sites in these regions include lapis lazuli, mentioned frequently in the Egyptian sources, beautiful shells, and goods made of tin and copper. The sites on the Arabian Peninsula are particularly interesting as they bring us back to something that we saw early on in our look at ancient Mesopotamia, that is, their trade with the lands of Dilmun, Magan, and Maluha. Dilmun and Magan are thought to have served as middlemen between Mesopotamia and Maluha, the Akkadian term for the people of the Indus River Valley. The bulk of the archaeological evidence for trade with Maluha that's been unearthed in Mesopotamia, and on the Arabian Peninsula also, comes from the Akkadian dynasty period of Mesopotamian history, so beginning around 2300 BCE when Sargon forged his empire and effectively unified the region, thereby opening the way for merchants from the southeast to bring their wares up to Mesopotamia. By this time, the Harappan civilization had been growing for a while. So, when Sargon's empire set the right conditions, the Harappans were in a prime position to capitalize on their wealth of resources and the relative lack of natural resources in Mesopotamia itself. As strange as it may sound to those of us who've been conditioned to think of modernity as the pinnacle of man's achievement, even the ancient Bronze Age world was a burgeoning place of long-distance trade and sophisticated exchange between cultures. While it's entirely possible that the Harappan people sailed west on the Arabian Sea to conduct their trade, archaeological evidence of ships or shipwrecks is sadly lacking. That being said, the Indus River Valley is aptly named. It's a riverine region where the Harappan people learned the local waters by heart. Obviously, their goods got to Mesopotamia somehow, and it wouldn't be surprising to find out that the Harappans were enterprising sailors, but we just don't have enough hard evidence to draw the conclusions that we'd like to be able to draw. We do, however, have evidence from the late 3rd millennium BCE that there was a village of Maluhans, likely Harappan settlers, outside the Mesopotamian port city of Lagash. It would make sense that they got there via sea, though again it's possible that they hitched a ride on board a Mesopotamian trade vessel, or even that they made multiple connections with short-distance traders between Maluha, Magan, Dilmun, and then finally in Lagash. Ultimately, we know from evidence along the route to Mesopotamia that the Harappans traded a wide variety of goods with their neighbors to the north and to the west. Although we don't have evidence of ships themselves from the Harappan period, 
or even for a while thereafter in the Indian subcontinent. We do have a few ship depictions that have been discovered at the main Harappan cities, though do keep in mind that research into the many Harappan cities is ongoing, and it hasn't been going on for all that long to begin with. So our knowledge of this culture's maritime technology may evolve extensively in the years to come. The first image is a seal impression discovered in the city of Mohenjo-Daro, one of the largest Harappan cities located inland from the sea, but still situated on the Indus River, thereby giving it access to the Arabian Sea via the river. This crude seal depiction shows a boat that's probably a reed bundle boat, like those we saw in Egypt, though some have proposed the possibility that it may be a planked boat instead. It has a sharply upturned stem and stern, and was steered by long steering oars. The seal depicts one of the earliest Indian ships represented in Bronze Age art, and though some believe that the vertical structures shown in the middle of the boat depict masts, it's more likely that the boat simply had a cabin-like structure in the center. The best representation of a Harappan ship also comes from Mohenjo-Daro, but this one is depicted on a terracotta amulet. This boat had a flat bottom with raked stern and prow, and there are two steering oars at the stern. In the middle of the boat, there's a cabin, and at both ends of the ship, a seabird is depicted. There are also two masts on both sides of the central cabin. The ship seems to be constructed of bundle reeds, again, a method of shipbuilding that was used in Egypt during the Bronze Age. The oldest depiction of a boat comes in the form of a graffito that was found painted on a potsherd that was also found at Mohenjo-Daro. This depiction is the one that's most likely to represent a planked boat, possibly with a spoon-shaped hull. The vertical and near-horizontal lines above the graffito hull may well be depictions of a mast and yard, and if so, this is the earliest evidence for the use of the sail in the Indian region. I do have a picture of this graffito up on the website if you're curious, but the only one I could find was a reproduction of the graffito as it was depicted on the seal for India's 2001 International Fleet Review in Mumbai. It's not the actual potsherd, but it gives you an idea of the type of boat that was depicted, and you can decide for yourself whether you think the lines above the hull depict a sail or not. As for boat models, not much has been found either. One item was unearthed in the ancient city of Harappa, a site that takes its name from a modern village located near the former course of the Ravi River. The archaeological convention is to name a previously unknown civilization by the first excavated site connected to that civilization. So the Indus Valley Civilization, also the Harappan, got its name from the ancient city of Harappa. Anyway, the item from Harappa is a 6-centimeter-long terracotta item that's been interpreted as being a toy boat model. For what it's worth, this model shares the traits of the boat depictions that were found at Mohenjo-Daro. They're all flat-bottom boats with high prows, a shape that's characteristic of the reed bundle type of boat that was probably used to traverse the river system in the Indus River Valley itself. As I've already said at least once, 
we don't have any physical ship remains connected to the Harappan civilization. However, the mention of Harappa as a city brings up an interesting point that I was astounded by when I first stumbled upon it in my research. The Harappan civilization as a whole consisted of at least a thousand cities and settlements, though the actual number was probably far greater. The city of Harappa itself is thought to have had around 25,000 residents, so a fairly large city for the time period about which we're talking. Here's the amazing part, though. The Harappan civilization encompassed over 680,000 square kilometers, more than twice the area occupied by its contemporaries in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Harappan sites across this great expanse shared many remarkable similarities in terms of their material culture, iconography, and settlement pattern. And although there are regional variations, it was the high degree of similarity across this vast area that led archaeologists to declare the discovery of a new civilization. Lest you think I'm straying too far from our maritime history focus, here's why I think that this tidbit is relevant. Harappa the city is located far inland, on an alluvial plain, so it's also far from any significant sources of stone or other building material. The city also happens to be the second largest Harappan site discovered to date, and every single stone found at the site, down to the smallest pebble, had to have been transported there by some human activity from the surrounding highland areas. Conveniently for the people of Harappa, although also the likely reason why they built the city where they did, Harappa is located in the Punjab region, a region whose name literally means Land of the Five Rivers. Most of the stone used to build Harappa came from sources at least 120 kilometers away, some types of stone coming from sources over 200 kilometers away. So how did they get it to the site of Harappa? Well, the most apparent answer is that the transport was accomplished by boat to take advantage of the ubiquitous rivers in the region. This was likely the case to some degree, though one analysis I came across made the case that the Harappan people did the bulk of such transport on land, only using boats as ferries to cross rivers when absolutely necessary. As with most of what we've seen so far from the region, we don't have a definitive answer. We know that these people were familiar with boats, thanks to the depictions that have been found, but the lack of physical ship remains would suggest that their use may not have been as prevalent as was the case in Egypt and Mesopotamia. Let's go ahead and turn our attention to the coastal cities and see if we can flesh out how connected the Harappans were to the sea as opposed to the rivers. The sites we've seen so far, mainly Harappa and Mohenjo-daro, were located far inland on the Indus River. The next few sites are all coastal cities, interpreted as being ancient port cities of the Harappan people. Many of these sites are situated somewhere in the Gujarat region, which includes the Gulf of Kutch and the Gulf of Kambay the area that was discussed in the Periplus of the Erythrean Sea as being difficult to navigate. The site that's most often mentioned as important to our understanding of the Harappan maritime trade 
is a site called Lothal. This site lies at the head of the Gulf of Cambay, and has yielded the largest cache of Harappan seals outside Mohenjo-daro and Harappa itself. So it was likely a Harappan port city, even though it's 800 kilometers away from the Indus River itself. Many of the seals were found in the ruins of a building that seems to have been a warehouse, evidence of the city as a port. More controversial evidence of Lothal as a port comes from a structure that some have interpreted as being among the world's oldest dockyards. This structure is basically a basin lined with brick and built into the ground with a wall around the outside edge. It has a depth of 3.1 meters, but it's fairly large, measuring 214 by 36 meters. There's also a sluice gate at one end to control the water level, and presumably to prevent the basin from overflowing. While the structure is most definitely of Harappan origin, recent interpretations have tended to discount the dock theory. Originally, it was proposed that the structure served as a dock for the berthing of ships that could reach the dock by rivers which were fed into the dock basin itself. Other theories have focused more on the likelihood that the basin was an irrigation tank used to store water for drinking and for irrigation. I have to confess that I'm a little bit skeptical of interpreting the local structure as a dock, simply because it seems too good to be true. We know that Mesopotamia at this period had seagoing vessels and made long-distance journeys. We also have reference to docks in literature from this period in ancient Mesopotamia, yet we don't even have any archaeological evidence of a dock in Mesopotamia itself, yet. Compare that to the Indus Valley Civilization, where we have no evidence of seagoing vessels and very indirect evidence of maritime exploits to begin with. Why should we foist the dock interpretation on the structure when it could easily be interpreted as a water basin or even something else that we haven't thought of? That's my two cents anyhow. I think it's also instructive that there's not much evidence of foreign items that's been discovered at Lothal. So if the structure really were a dock for foreign and local ships, wouldn't there be more evidence of trade? There are a handful of other coastal cities from the Harappan civilization that have been pointed to as port cities, the majority of them sitting west of Lothal. Some of them are west of the Indus River itself, and their presence is seen as being evidence of a coastal trade route that may have been used in conjunction with the middlemen of Dilmun and Magan. Beyond these other sites, our maritime evidence of the Indus Valley civilization is pretty much exhausted, and even the additional sites give us hardly any new evidence in the way of maritime artifacts. So with that, I'll go ahead and bring today's look at the Harappan civilization to a close. As we saw in our discussion of Mesopotamia, the Harappan trade with their neighbors to the northwest began to decline somewhere in the ballpark of 1800 BCE, and it was almost completely dead within a hundred years. The speculation is that a drought got the ball rolling, and that once trade began to dry up, the decline picked up speed. The Harappan people began to move eastward, settling in modern-day India. 
This, combined with other migration from regions to India and Pakistan's north, resulted in a transition to what historians now call the Vedic period, a period that's beyond our scope today. We'll get there eventually and see early India's connections with its neighbors, but a large part of the Vedic periods was also relatively quiet on the maritime activity front, so I don't know if we'll have much to cover there. At this point, I foresee us shifting over to the Mediterranean in earnest and looking at the Minoan civilization on Crete. From there, we'll fill in any remaining gaps and then see how the Sea Peoples wreaked havoc on the ancient maritime world. Before I sign off for today, I did also want to let you know about a special episode that I'm working on for inclusion on David Crowther's History of England podcast. As his podcast is currently in the ballpark of covering Henry V-related info, I'm putting together a look at Henry V's involvement with the early iteration of the English Navy. It should be a fun detour from our ancient world focus on the podcast so far, and I'll be sure to spread the word once that episode is available. With that, my work here today is finished. I hope that you enjoyed today's episode, and until next time, thanks for listening to the Maritime History Podcast.